Um, okay, so we're in the book of James again today. Uh, so if you have a Bible and want to turn to James, it's at the end of the Old Testament, end of the New Testament. <laughs> Someone knows where it is. And uh, we've been, well, James, James is the half-brother of Jesus, um, which is quite a claim to make. He grew up with his elder brother, Jesus, watching his every move. And for much of James's life, unsurprisingly, he didn't worship his brother as God. There's not many people who find it easy to worship their brother as God, and, and James was one of them. In fact, in, in the Gospels, there is an account of when James and his family come to Jesus and say he's out of his mind because of some of the things that he was saying. However, James's opinion of his brother changed, um, probably something to do with the fact that he predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, and that generally has a habit of changing people's mind about you. Um, James changed his opinion of Jesus and became one of the church's first leaders, uh, and he writes this letter to a group of Christians who have recently been scattered as a result of some persecution that's come to the church. It's the earliest letter that's written in the New Testament. And it's full of practical advice on how to live the Christian life. And so we've, we've made this series as practical as we, as we can. Every week we've been talking about a different how-to. So we've had how to grow as a Christian, uh, how to resist temptation, how to handle our anger. Uh, last week I looked at how to spot celebrity in a sense of who should we celebrate uh, and hold up as worthy of it, copying in the church, who should the church be known for celebrating, things like that. And today I want to talk about this one, how to live by faith, um, which you'd think in the church there'd be a lot of it because we are the people of faith, if you like. Uh, the reality is that all of us live by faith, regardless of whether you acknowledge it or not. Um, every statement that someone make, might make about how we should live our lives is a statement of faith. So I think we should, as long as I'm happy and I don't hurt anyone, that's a good life. Well, that's a statement of faith. You're living by a faith in that philosophy or worldview or idea of living. But as Christians, we are the people of faith. You know, we're, we're right out from the offset saying, I'm, I want to live by faith in the Son of God. Paul says, I want to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I define myself like that. Jesus said, if you want to live a life of faith, it looks like this. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to be known as that. But James is writing to the church trying to, and he addresses this issue of what a life of faith looks like simply purely because they've been arguing about what it looks like. Some are saying, oh look, you don't have to live by faith as long as you just believe by faith. As long as you have the right kind of belief, then how you live doesn't really matter. It's still saving faith. So James almost writes them saying, look guys, you had one job. Just live by faith. And he has to clear out what that means. You had one job, which reminds me of a website I came across this week. A website called you had you had one job you might have seen this and it's various images of what they call workplace fails uh, things that people have done wrong in the workplace when they've had one job and they haven't been able to get it right and i found some of these very amusing so hopefully you will my wife thinks this, that these aren't that funny but here we go look at this you had one job <laughs> that was his one job paint the stop sign uh, how about this one um, crack resistant cement with a big crack down the middle of it you had one job uh, or how about this one you had one job um, and that's left written on the right arrow and right written on the left arrow just to mess with the dyslexic people among us. There we go. You had one job. Um, and James is saying to the church, you had one job. Be the people of faith. So let's look at how we live by faith. James 2, verses 14 to 26. Let's, let's get going. Um, here we go. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Simple, right? (laughs) Faith apart from works is dead. So James answers, you had one job. Here we go, that's, the, um, that's another one just to throw in there for good measure. These are going to crop up throughout the next year in every sermon. I'm going to find a way of getting them in there. You had one job. James says, you have one job. Be the people of faith. Live by faith. And he tells them how to live by faith. Um, he states it negatively, what it isn't, and he states it positively, what it is. So we're going to just look at them and walk through it together. Uh, we're not so much concerned today with trying to do a, a verse-by-verse exposition and explain everything that James says. There's uh, some big ideas in there, but we are wanting to answer this question. What does it look like to be the people of faith? How do we make a difference in the world? Well, the first thing James says is it's not these two things. It's not by saying the right things, and it's not by believing the right things. Verse 14, he, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works, can that, what good is it? What good will it possibly do? And he talks about this man who's hungry but doesn't get given any food. To say, oh, be, fair, be well fed, be, be clothed, be warm, that's not enough. Um, so just saying the right things isn't enough. Uh, a friend of mine uh, told me about someone she knows who's in a church, and they, she has two, I think, um, children with severe special needs. And the members of the church are, are very concerned and very happy to pray for this, the, this mom and these girls. And I'll often say to them, oh, we want to pray for you. We, we hope that you're okay. We want to pray for your kids. Is that okay? But when it came to this woman actually needing some help, like, can someone look after my kids so I can sit in the sermon? There wasn't anyone willing to come forward. You think, well, what good is that? Like, the fact that you're willing to pray is nice, but what good is it? And James says, not only what good is it, but that faith can't even save him. And what do we mean when we talk about that being saved? That's a, a church idea. Um, there's a, essentially two narratives uh, at work in our world. Uh, the first is the idea that you are merely matter, sticks and bones, and that's it. And uh, we are the product of random process, chance, evolution, and here we are now, these impressive creatures that we are. And uh, what do you need to be saved from? You need to be saved from not contributing to your species' future. So so the purpose of your life then is to have kids and to benefit the community as a whole. The the Bible's alternative view is the view that you were created by an intelligent mind. 
you are more than just matter. You are uh, valuable and special because you're made in the image and likeness of God and that God designed us to live a satisfied, fulfilled relationship with him. However, we have sinned against that God and chased after everything else under the sun besides God to look for our satisfaction and fulfillment. And since, this is where the Bible really disagrees with modern science and the secular worldview, since you are an eternal creature, your soul and spirit cannot be destroyed. You will therefore either be, you will either be saved and live forever, live forever after death, or you won't be saved and you'll die forever. But you're an eternal creature. Something needs to happen. And James says the kind of faith that is just about words isn't enough to save you. His observation or point, if you like, is that it is very easy to say the right things. And you can go through life and church learning to say the right things, take the course of least resistance. You learn it at school, how, what to say to avoid getting into trouble, or, or when someone's telling you off what to say, how to get out of the situation. Or if you're part of church, if you've been around church for a long time, you can sometimes learn what it is that you need to say to fit into this community. Or we don't make those kinds of jokes, or we don't talk about that part of our life in church. Uh, if you've been raised in a Christian home, you're probably more in danger of this than the rest of us. You know what to say to sound like you're saved. You know what to say. Perhaps you've even been baptized. You've prayed a prayer of some kind. You've, you know what to do when the church gathers and they sing, and you know when to raise your arms, when to get on your knees, when to give it the serious brow face, hmm, the thoughtful face. You know what to do to create the right impression. I'm saved. I'm part of you. James says saying the right thing isn't enough. We can mimic the people around us. We can mimic a life of faith and never actually have it. You, you remind me of this, this, this parakeet, which I came across as well this week. Let's have a look at this. You get the idea. It's a weird video. Something's wrong with the video. <laughs> you get the idea. Uh, Disco the bird talks about a reality that he doesn't really know. It's cute. He might get some several hundred million thousand hits on YouTube, but he's not really a crook. He's not really anything other than a baby bird. He's never even seen the Flintstones, doesn't know what the reality is that he's talking about. But he's saying, meet the Flintstones. You've never met the Flintstones, bird. I'm not a crook. No, you're just a bird who's learned to mimic. And in church life, James is aware, we're aware, you can do that and get by. James says that as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Might look impressive. And the big idea that James is driving to in these verses that we read out is this, that it's really, it's our behavior that reveals our belief. It's our behavior that reveals our belief. You can say all kinds of things, but it's how you live, how you act, that betrays sometimes what we really think and, and how we really live. So he says, you, can, you don't live a life of faith, by faith by saying the right things or believing the right things, which may surprise you to hear. But he says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Which reminds me of the Lion King and the hyenas talk about Mufasa. I just hear that name and I shudder. Mufasa. <laughs> Remember that? They don't, the demons don't do it in quite the same comical tone. But the demons are aware of the reality of one God and they shudder at the reality of him. How you behave in response to what you say you believe really shows what you believe. 
now, I, several years ago, I did, the, um, I did the Alpha course, and I was very, uh, it was where I kind of first heard a lot of the, the stuff about Christianity. Alpha is um, a course that we run here. We're running one in a few months' time, and it, it gives people the opportunity to explore some of the claims of the Christian faith and discuss them with like-minded people. And on the Alpha course, I first heard about some of the things that Jesus said in the Bible. So Jesus says that he's the light of the world, says he's the way, the truth, and the life, big claims. I also saw about some of, the, some of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I also learned when I was doing the Alpha course that it's not just the Bible that talks about Jesus, it's other people as well. So uh, this is a quote from Josephus, who's a, a Jewish historian writing in the second century. And he says this, Now there arose at this time a source of further trouble in one Jesus, a wise man who performed surprising works. He was the so-called Christ. Actually, Josephus, I discovered this week, mentions our friend James that we're reading about in another passage in his writings. He says this, So he assembled the Sanhedrin and judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, some of the others, and he delivered them over to be stoned. So James gets a mention in extra-biblical sources, which I find interesting. It, it's impressive. Um, but being impressed by these truths, as I learned them in the Alpha Course, being impressed and go, oh, maybe there's some credibility to this faith. That won't save you. Intellectual belief is not the same as being saved. There are some very clever people in the world who've written some very big books on theology, but they don't know the God of the Bible. They've never, they've never surrendered them, their lives to Christ. They've never repented of their sin. They've never trusted him to follow him. They just know it all. Some of us could be prone to that trap. Some of us might be prone to the first trap. I, I can say the right things to get by. I can talk about faith like it's meaningful. Others of us might be prone to the other trap. I can learn a lot. I love to learn. I love to read. love to study. But believing and learning and intellectualizing the faith isn't enough. I saw a video on YouTube several months ago by um, Russell Brand, of all people, claiming that he believes in God. Uh, refuting Stephen Fry's arguments about the non-existence of God. And he, Russell Brand, in this video, used a lot of the same arguments that I've heard our Andrew Wilson, who speaks here on a Sunday, I've heard him use. Russell Brand and Andrew Wilson believe the same thing. Does he? I don't know. I'm not judging the guy. Maybe. But James's big idea is that it isn't what you say that reveals what you believe, or even what you believe that reveals, or what you say you believe that reveals what you believe. It's your behavior that reveals your belief. But in verse 19, not only does he say the demons believe, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. It's not entirely bad. There's good in it. Uh, and for many of us, our journey of belief is a, is a journey. It starts with us, perhaps coming to church or being around, meeting some Christian friends and, and learning to say, yeah, I think Jesus is impressive, interesting. And then we might move to the stage of, yeah, I, I think I believe, but something else needs to happen. It needs to move beyond that. It needs to move to the next stage. And that's where my chair comes into play. This is my chair, whom, I'm, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And um, you may recognize this chair because some of the pallets may well have been used in our Easter service on, on Easter Sunday. This chair I built with my very own hands. I'm not, you know, my hands are soft. They've never done a day's work in their life, but they did a day's work when they made this chair. Now, I'm impressed with this chair. I like this chair. I showed my wife when I finished this chair because I'm that kind of guy. And in fact, if you've been around my house in the last few months, I've told you about this chair and I've shown it to you and I've made you sit on it several times because I'm that impressed. Look, I did something. 
Um, I showed this to my wife and it was finished, beaming with pride. She came out, she looked at it and went, oh, yes, lovely. And that was it. She walked off. I said, what do you mean it's lovely? Do you like it? She said, yes, I think it's very good. Well done. Now, it, I've been making the boys dinner time. You haven't been helping me. It's time for them. To, let's go and eat dinner. I'm like, no, no, no. Come and observe my chair. The reason I've been abdicating my fatherly responsibilities and my husbandly duties is because I've been building. And now I have built. Sit. Instead of sitting, she said, I like it. I think it looks good. Yes, it looks stable. I said, that's not enough. Do you believe that my chair is well built? Can you sit on it? She said, yes, no, I believe that this chair will hold me up if I sit on it. However, it's dinner time. I've made the boys dinner. I'm stressed. They've wound me up. Come on. <laughs> no, 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 that is not enough. I do not believe that you believe that this chair will hold you up. Now, for my wife to say she's impressed with the chair and to say that she thinks it will hold her up, because it doesn't look the sturdiest thing in the world, let's be honest. <laughs> and it's quite thin. It's quite narrowly made. And actually, the first Mark I prototype model it wasn't worth sitting on. In fact, I discouraged her from sitting on it. But the way that I knew she had confidence in my chair is when she eventually took a load off and sat down. That's, what, that's the difference between talking about faith, believing faith, and actually trusting faith. I'm going to build my life on this thing. I'm going to tell everyone about it. And I'm not just going to tell them about it. I'm not just going to believe it intellectually. I'm going to sit down. All right, it's a little bit wobbly. All right, I'm getting splinters because it's not finished. I've got to sand it. But still, there's a difference, I told her, between you saying you like it and you actually liking it. I think she got it. Now, I, I, in our garden where this chair lives, um, we, we seem to have had a recent infestation of maybugs. I don't know if you familiar with the may bug it's this cross between a beetle and a moth and it comes out for six or seven weeks of the year it is a perfectly harmless bug i believe that i know this bug is harmless i've read about it online i can't work out how to kill it yet but i know it's harmless however if you saw the way i behaved around this bug you would soon realize that although i say i believe and although i believe it's harmless the way i behave betrays my true belief and that is, I'm terrified of these things. They're just giant moths. Such, such a, I'm terrified of them to the point that I don't go out in my garden after dusk between the months of May and July, which is horrible because I like the sunshine. And a few weeks ago, I was outside during the dusk period thinking, I'm all man. These bugs are not going to rule my life and ruin my garden. I'm going to take them on. So I sat there on my bench, not my chair because I don't trust it, <laughs> reading a book. And the sun went down, and I heard the flapping of these beetle-type wings, and they came out. I did what everyone who's not scared of maybugs would do. I jumped up, and I sprinted inside the house, terrified of these things, because they, they dive-bomb at you, and they just bounce off you, but they're terrifying. Anyway, I asked, like, you know, like every self-respecting 32-year-old husband and father of two, I asked Amy to go into the garden and get rid of these things so I could go carry on reading my book. She wouldn't. She forced me back out. So, in full body armor and a big stick, because I realized that my, I left my phone on the bench, which is like, oh no, I've got to go back out, and now the Maybugs rule. I went out there, and I sprinted as fast as I could. I came back inside, and I was having a panic attack for several minutes afterwards. I almost got seen by a Maybug. Now, I say, I believe that these Maybugs are perfectly harmless, and in fact, they are perfectly harmless, but my behavior betrays my belief, because how you behave reveals what you believe. I think we get that. So James says how to live by faith. It's not by saying the right things about maybugs or whatever. It's not by saying the right things or believing the right things even. It's these other two things which we look at briefly. It's by taking God at his word 
and it's by trusting God for his help. And James uses two examples, stories from the Old Testament. He talks about Abraham, the father of faith. And Abraham was told by God, take your son up this mountain and sacrifice him there. Abraham took God at his word and was willing to go through with it. When at the last moment God said, whoa, 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 don't do that. I was just testing. Actually, in the bush over there, there's a ram. You sacrifice that instead of your son. Abraham took God at his word, and he trusted God for his rescue in providing the son. But also, James quotes this Old Testament character called Rahab. And we'll look at Rahab in a, in a, in a moment. But Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. And when, when the spies of Israel entered the city of Jericho, she hid them in our home because she took God at his word. She'd heard about the God of Israel. She'd heard about what he did to the Egyptians and the crossing of the Red Sea. So she took God at his word. He's the real God. So she hid the spies. And then when the spies and the whole people of Israel came back to Jericho to destroy the city, she looked to God for her rescue. She hid out. She tied to her her window frame, a scarlet cord, like a red scarf, trusting that they would rescue her because they'd identify her home and spare her. So Abraham and Rahab, what they did is they took God at his word and they trusted God for his help or for his rescue. But let's just look at this one verse here because this is a, a verse that's a source of much controversy in Christian history. James says this in the green, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son on the altar. And the reason that's controversial is because those of you who know your Bible will know that Paul, the other kind of big cheese in the early church who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he specialized in saying what was the opposite, that we're not justified by works, we're justified by faith. So you read James say this, and it should make you go, huh, justified by works? How does that work? Are they in disagreement then? Some people have believed that they have. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, he said that the book of James is an epistle of straw. Don't read it. And he almost didn't include it in his German translation of the New Testament because he didn't like it because he couldn't work out how James saying this didn't contradict what Paul was saying. And some of you think, aha, the Bible contradicts itself. See, he says that you have justified by works. Paul says, no, you're justified by faith. Which is it? Ha, caught you out. Whereas actually, if you take James as a whole and Paul as a whole, and rather than just extracting the odd verse and sentence and phrase, you see that no, they don't disagree at all. Um, it's rather like, because uh, actually, uh, I suppose it's worth saying, they're writing to different audiences. Paul is writing to people whose main error is the error of legalism, believing that by working hard, they can earn their righteousness. James is writing to people, on the other hand, who are, er who are in the error of what's called license. You don't need to work. You can just do whatever you like. You don't need to, you just say you believe and that's enough. Easy believism. Just say you believe and you'll be saved. The, the errors of the audience are different. So Paul and James are writing to correct the different errors. But the, the way I picture it is, it is rather like this. Imagine you were in an orchard, and in the orchard, where, which is a place that apple, tree grow, apple trees grow, you came across a pile of acorns. Now, these acorns may wonder, how do, we, how do we get saved? And how do we avoid being thrown out of this orchard? Paul would look at those acorns and say, you need to become an apple tree, and then you won't be thrown out of the orchard. James would look at the acorns and say, you need to produce apples. They're talking about the same reality, but coming at it from different ways. Essentially, what they're saying is, both of them agree with this, that you are saved by faith 
alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. In other words, it is not enough for me to just say, yeah, I believe in that chair. The way I prove that my faith is genuine, leg-resting faith is by sitting on the chair. I'm saved by faith alone, faith that this chair can save me. But the way that I prove that my faith is genuine saving faith is by sitting and trusting. This is the definition of what faith is. Faith is not easy believism and just, yeah, I believe it. I believe that Maybugs are harmless. No, faith is shown itself or shows itself in its works. And that's what James is driving at there. You prove what you believe by how you behave. It's your behavior that reveals your belief. So, what does it look like to live by faith? What does it look like to take God at his word and to look to God for rescue? For you, in your life, what does it look like? What does it mean? Well, for me, when I became a Christian, I knew that after becoming a Christian, the first thing that the Bible says is, get baptized in water. Because that is an evidence that my faith isn't just a, yeah, I believe it. But it's evidence that, no, I believe it enough to do something about it, to show it to the world. So I took God at his word. When I first became a Christian as well, I knew I had to end the relationship that I was in that was doing me harm. And it wasn't helping me grow in God. It wasn't what God wanted for me. I took God at his word, ended the relationship, got baptized and started trying to live differently and trust him. Taking God at his word looks like something. I don't know what it looks like for you. It might look like the end of self-sufficiency, the end of saying I can do it all by myself. It might look like the end of rebellion. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what God's word says. Taking God at his word is saying, if your word says this, I'll do it. If you mean that, I'll obey. You say jump, I'll say how high. You say living by faith is not a blind step in the dark. It's a looking at the reason and evidence for God and deciding in light of that, I'm going to trust you. And trust is different from faith because trust sits and we can see that. You need to sit, take God at his word. And what matters is not perfection, that you always get things right. What matters is progress, that you're willing to repent, learn, grow, trust, change in response to what God says through his word. And this is where we return to Rahab. I love, love, love the fact that Rahab is quoted here and that Rahab even finds her way into the New Testament. Rahab, as we said, is a prostitute in the ancient East. She was a, no little girl grows up dreaming of being a prostitute. Rahab finds herself in this situation. A woman who is shameful, who's been abused, who's been treated by men horrendously, been treated like a possession to be discarded. Rahab has not had it good. What does Rahab do in the faith that she can muster? She takes God at his word and she reaches out for rescue. I'll hide these spies who've come to spy out my town and I'll hide them in the hope that God you'd rescue me because I need rescuing. Rahab knew that. And when the Israelites eventually stormed the city of Jericho, she was the one person who was spared, the one person who was saved. 
See, faith looks like a trust in God, and, and in Rahab's case, and in James' example, it outworks itself also in kindness to other people. There's a faith that's Godward, and there's a faith that's shown itself in manwardness. You know, if someone's hungry, feed them. That's how you show that you love them. We looked last week at the fact that love in the scripture is not an emotion, it's an action. So we love them. And it was Charles Spurgeon who said that if you want to give someone a tract, in other words, if you want to give someone a, a leaflet with a gospel on it, if you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it up in a sandwich. <laughs> if you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it up in a sandwich. So Rahab reached out to these, protected these people, reached out to God, demonstrated that by reaching out to these people. Well, what became of Rahab? Well, Rahab um, got married and uh, mothered, gave birth to Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. It's from the line of David that Jesus eventually came. Rahab, shameful, dirty Rahab, who was on the, the rubbish dump of the world, reached out to God for rescue and was given a place of highest honor in the people of God. It's from her line that Jesus the Messiah eventually came. Jesus the liberator and rescuer of all humanity came through Rahab. Dirty, shameful, prostitute Rahab. God redeems the broken. And God can rescue anyone who reaches out to him for help. Because a life of faith just looks like taking God at his word, no matter how small our faith might be, and reaching out to God for rescue. See, so that's how we live a life of faith. And we can start today. I know that many of you are in this place already. I, I, I moved house, God, because I took you at your word. Uh, we had kids, God, because we took you at your word that kids were a blessing. And right now, they don't feel like a blessing, but we took you at your word. Now we're reaching out to you for help because this is hard. I trusted you, God. I took you at your word and I used my gifts in my workplace. I, I started a business. I took that job. And now I need you to help. You see, living by faith doesn't just, you don't just begin the life of faith by saying, I'm going to take God at his word. I'm going to repent of my sin and trust Jesus for my rescue. It doesn't just begin there. It remains there as well. The gospel is not a door that you walk through and then you're done with it. It's a companion that you live with your whole life. Knowing that you need rescuing, you need help, you need saving. And the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that takes God at his word and looks to God for his rescue. And just like Rahab hung out of her window this scarlet cord that indicated her need for rescue and her trust in God, so it is with us. that We don't, we don't throw up a white flag of surrender Instead, we point to the red blood of Jesus. We flop a red flag of, I need rescue, I need help. And I love as well the imagery there in Rahab that she held out this red flag and now we hold out the red blood of Jesus, poured out for us so that we could be saved and forgiven and changed. Let me pray and then we'll worship in response to that. Father, I ask that you'd help us to be a people of faith are people who take you at your word. God, would we be people who take you at your word? When you say don't, we won't. When your word says do, we will. And would we be a people who look to you for rescue? It's your help that we need, oh God. 
to your salvation. And would this be a church, God, full of people not with the kind of faith that just says, I'll be well and does nothing about it, or I'll pray for your kids and doesn't do what we could to help. Would we be a church of people who have faith enough in you to say, I will do that. I'll sit down. I'll trust you. God, I pray for those of us in the room who don't feel like we've ever really sat down on the chair. We talked about the chair. We appreciate the chair, but we never actually looked to you to relieve some of our pain. We've never trusted in you. Today, we take you at your word and we look to you for our help, for our rescue. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen.